0: They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to In the
1: Pink, the podcast with me, Natalie Pinkham, where I speak to all sorts of different people interesting people from all sorts of different and interesting backgrounds to find out what makes them tick, what has made them so successful, what drives them, what ambitions and hopes they've got yet to fulfil. Now, my guest this week is a really interesting man. His name is Martin Elliott. Maybe not a name you've heard of, but he's a man that's changed the lives of thousands of families all over the world because he is a heart surgeon from Great Ormond Street Hospital. He's also crazy about Formula 1, which helps, as you can see, that's why we got on so well. And he's applied the practices of the sport to the medical sector, with incredible results. Hear all about Martin Elliott, Great Ormond Street, Formula 1, and the lives that have been affected by this wonderful man. Please welcome Martin Elliott to In The Pink. Well, Martin Elliott, thank you very much for your time today. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. And actually, I'm really delighted to be back at Great Ormond Street because I came here once and I was full of trepidation because I thought this is going to be actually quite an intimidating place to come. And I thought I'd be very emotional. And I have to say it was the most uplifting place I've been to for years.
2: Yeah. I mean, it is... um Well, A, it's a privilege to work here, Um, but I think all the time, all the years I've been here, it's really unusual to see an unhappy face. I mean, obviously, you see some parents, when they've had some bad news sitting outside, but as you walk around, children are all smiling, there's plenty to play with, and the nurses are all smiling, looking after the kids, and it it feels like a family grown up, Uh, and um, I think we try and foster that as well, probably. It's been a great place.
1: What do you think is it about it that sets it apart from, from other places where there might be a bit of doom and gloom? I know on the advert they will say it doesn't smell funny. Actually, that's quite significant, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's children that make the difference. So the everybody is totally devoted to looking after the kids. And um, the second thing is that the um, it's very laid back as a result. You know, people aren't sort of stuffy. Um, I think also when you deal with I mean from a medic's point of view when you deal with young people and their uh, families you're always dealing with young people they're always young because they've got kids and the parents you probably know yourself are not going to take any bullshit from you if you're if you're dealing on behalf of your child are much more robust with you and so the relationship you have with families is much more um, close much more friendly much more honest and open than sometimes you see in adult medicine where I think people get a a bit, I'm a doctor, I'm a doctor, and I want my sausages, you know, it's that kind of more relaxed relationship between people, which I think goes on and on, generation after generation.
1: There was this amazing feature that I saw when I came here a few years ago, which was like the, correct me if I'm wrong, but I felt that there was this sort of like passageway down to theatre, and... um, the child would be asked beforehand, what was their favourite animal? Yeah. And then a trigger from, from maybe their bracelet would set off yes, a... Yes, like puppet. a digital wall. So yeah. it kind
2: of, um, it, as the child moves along, the little images light up in little light panels hidden behind the paper so they can see their rabbit or their bird or whatever it is moving along. And it, it just takes their mental focus away from whatever's happening to them. There's a whole group of people who are... Spend their lives, really, trying to think of ways to take the stress and strain out of it for children and their parents. And, and design of hospitals is, is a really complex field. People f- put a huge amount of time into thinking about trying to reduce the stress. As you say, keeping the smell down and no smell, um, keeping noise down, flattening ceilings or making them not echo, changing light patterns so that you don't feel stressed, altering it between day and night. These things all matter and GIS has sort of tried to put them in whenever it makes changes to the building
1: and, and how much involvement have you had in terms of that because I, I was reading that you do have you spent some time on on improving the service and the, and the general practice
2: of the place well I, I mean everybody does that you know that nobody wants it to stay static but mm. I, I mean I, I um, so as you grow up the greasy pole you, you have to run more and more bits and pieces so you start off Running small teams, then bigger teams, then a department, and eventually I became medical director of the place. Um, and at, at each of those levels, you have to kind of concentrate on something you think's important that you want to drive through. And for me, there were um, two or three areas that I really wanted to um, extend the work of my predecessors. I never say change completely, but um, I wanted to make sure that our outcomes what we did the quality of the work we did was world-class and that's your field in formula one that's the excellence that you're aiming for all the time the second was um, to do as much as we could to make the experience of the families really as good as it could be and the third one was to recognize that we never have enough money and the, the only way to um, improve the quality of work that we do is to, is, is around teamwork and the human factors of what we do, and that's built on work that my predecessor, a guy called Mark DeLaval, who's a brilliant guy, um, who was a previous professor of cardiac surgery, and he had um, was kind of very obsessed about the potential for his own failure, and started looking very carefully at the errors that doctors make, um, and as a result became created a culture where we focused a lot on failure, if you like, trying to avoid it, and looking at ways in which we could work better to make it safer. So by building safety, efficacy, and experience into the three things that we wanted to change, um, that was what drove us. And that they, they kind of matched work that was going on at, as well at Imperial College from a guy called Larry Darcy who became a government minister eventually and uh, Lord Darzina, and he actually wrote down those themes at almost the same time that this was going on with Marc Levar. And I felt that um, my own role was to build on all of those bases, if you like, just to keep, keep making it better and better.
1: First of foremost, you are a surgeon, Yeah. and how much of your time do you spend in theatre?
2: Now I've just stopped operating. So I'm very old now. So I've stopped operating last year, at the end of last year.
1: So you don't do any no
2: any operations. I had I had an operation on my hand, and that seemed like a good time to leave. Um, <laughs> Is that strange for you? Not actually, no. Um, I thought it would be. I thought I'd get sort of suicidal, and um, but it it hasn't been very difficult. I, I, we've hired well, so I can look back on the people behind me and think they're way better than me, and that's a good feeling. You know, when you see. The surgeons who are here now, and I watch them operate to treat. You know, and that's it's like, I lo- I'm, I love watching experts do what they do. Like watching people dig holes if they do it well, and uh, you know, going back into the operating room and seeing someone I've had a hand in training, just being fantastic. That's as good as it gets. So I don't feel I need to do it. I do other things. I'm not bored. So mm. um, uh, no, I've filled my life up pretty fully, but no, I don't. I don't miss the operating.
1: But I guess it, it must be a bit like a professional sports person who's never quite sure when to hang up their boots or helmet, race suit, whatever it is. Yeah. Is it difficult to find the right time?
2: Well, you should. they always say you should uh, um, retire one operation early rather than one operation late. That's a good I point. It's <laughs> probably true. Um, I think there is a, a clear parallel that you have to kind of feel it. But whenever you, when, uh, by running the department, you... Um, sort of drift away from the having to do absolutely everything at the shop floor level. And then becoming medical director, I did less operating. So it was a gradual transition. Mm. I think the people I see struggle towards the end of their careers are those who do, do it flat out and then stop, and they usually sort of die within <laughs> six months. You know, I think it's really important to gradually ease out of your craft-based role. Mm. And I don't think... Um, I don't think the NHS or any health system does that well actually because um, some of the stuff we learned from the airline industry for example is, is that pilots have massive technical skills flying a big plane. Um, but they also have to learn a lot about human factors and so they get assessed in the simulator every six months to see if they're safe to go up in the air, but they also get assessed by senior people standing behind them watching what they're doing and ticking a few boxes. In 40 years, no one's ever watched me operate in that way, and I've never been in a simulator. And you think about it, that's a bit crazy. And the, I think people at the end, towards the end of their career, should be not paid to operate, but paid to train and paid to um, supervise, or watch, or score their peers to make sure that they can correct any anomalies, I'm not saying fire them, I mean that's pointless, mm. pilots don't get fired, they get retrained for a few weeks and then come back to do what they do better um, whereas in, traditionally in healthcare you get suspended on full pay for a couple of years, you know, if, if something happens best to prevent it from happening by building in safety all the way down the line
1: I'm surprised that that doesn't happen already
2: well, I mean lots of people talk about it but the, we're, it's pretty short staffed mm. and although um, we, I mean there clearly have been an expansion in the number of consultants but the working patterns have changed a lot, and the hours restrictions, which didn't exist when I was training, have come in. Mm. So you need more people to deal with hours restrictions. Yeah, of course. You know, I, I operated all the time. I was on call most of the time. How, how many
1: operations would you do a day, for example? Oh,
2: in, in cardiac surgery, you, you probably do two or three at the max. Two usually, uh, because they take several hours.
1: Always children as well. Always babies. Yeah,
2: I, I mean, I started no I, myself. I trained as a general surgeon first, then adult cardiac and then a cardiothoracic heart and lung, and then paediatrics, because I got bored with doing adult cardiac surgery, actually. Um, it was, I, st- I looked up at the clock one day when I was stitching on the, the far end of a coronary artery bypass graft. In those days, we used to do a lot of those. And um, I realized I was more, more interested in how long it was taking me. And I couldn't remember as much as I should have done about the patient. I knew what was the matter with the heart and what I was doing technically, but I I didn't know about them. And um, I realised that that certainly didn't suit my personality. I prefer to know more about the patient and their family. And there's a a great story from um, an American chief executive in New York who had a terrible disaster happen in the hospital. Somebody Something on the wrong side, or take the wrong kidney out, or chop the wrong leg off—I can't remember—and he went public straight away and said, "This is a terrible thing." And he introduced something that would, wouldn't ha- wouldn't work in this country; it wouldn't have any traction just because of the language they chose in America, which was, I think, all the moment of reverence, and we're so sort of um, non-religious that just doesn't ring true. But what it what it did was to say, when you've got this baby or this man or this woman on the operating table just take a few paces back and say what do we know about this person who is this have they got children themselves what's their name you know why are we doing this and um, it's it's a really interesting mental exercise to remember at that last moment before you pick up the knife that you actually have some serious responsibility for how this family's going it's not just a technical exercise
1: in a way though to be able to compartmentalise may make you more efficient? I mean, I, there's well, something to be said if you're too emotionally involved with the patient.
2: Yeah, I gave a, a Gresham lecture about this a couple of years ago, and um, I decided I'd ask my... One uh, of the audience said, in a previous thing, said, um, what does it feel like to hold a baby's heart in your hands? And, uh, I, you know, no one had ever asked me that. I'm, well, it's pretty exciting, I think. But I thought I'd interview uh, with one of these things, uh, or my peers, and um, it was really interesting to discover that uh, exactly as you described, some people just simply can't cope with knowing the child beforehand. They can only do their technical job by wrapping it up in the technical side of what they're doing, um, and the plumbing, if you like. Uh, Others, like me, found that they didn't sustain the energy or the drive without some kind of emotional push that would you know make you go the extra mile if you like know. um, technically pediatric cardiac surgery is just about as tough as you can get in surgery you're operating very complicated 3d anatomy which is small it's like operating on a walnut at the bottom, bottom of a wine glass inside a walnut wearing magnifying glasses and um everything you do is going to impact that child's life forever more so if you if you get two sort of fired up by that you will cease your hands will stop working you you, you have to have the confidence that you can both start and finish and um, and that, that's very hard to explain you know you, you sometimes you don't know all the detail you think you might need to know but you've got to have the confidence that you can get out of it and to the benefit of the child um, these days it's, it's very different now because the imaging is so fantastic. You know, we've got MR which we can build three dimensional models, we can print hearts we can use virtual reality to fly through them and um, work it all out in much greater precision but in the old days, not that long ago maybe 20, 30 years ago you used to have a two dimensional imaging from different angles and you then had to use your brain to reconstruct the three dimensional image and then work out how you were going to do the plumbing. So to try and Um, learn that, you've almost had to do it, because like we're sitting on an opposite side of a table and I'm working down here, you can't see what I'm doing behind this box but you have to if you're going to do the operation so somehow I've got to be able to explain to you what I'm doing, so that used to be a huge problem now we wear a camera and a bright light and people can see it on the TV screen so we've accelerated the learning to some extent, and the learning curve people arrive now able to do very complex surgery uh, in much more quickly than we did when we were training at, at a cost, I think.
1: What you were describing then, is obviously a deeply personal approach to you about uh, how you cope with, and as you say, how you feel holding a baby's heart. Mm. So, so what are the emotions for you and, and when do you know that you've got it just right?
2: Well, there's two elements to getting it just right. Um, before I deal with the emotional question so there's a in order to operate on the inside of a baby's heart you have to stop the heart for a period of time and allow the, a machine to run the circulation for the rest of the body so you isolate the heart by putting clamps on the vessels then you open the heart operate on it and then stitch it all up and release the clamp to let warm blood flow back through the heart and it starts beating again so you have a couple of things there which are driving you. One is access. How do you get into it? The second is time, because although you've cooled the heart down and you've given it a chemical to protect it for a while, mm. it's still gradually deteriorating. You know, it's just m- metabolizing even at a low temperature. So it, you have a time limit.
1: When wh- what is that time limit?
2: It varies a bit. It, it, it depends on what you're doing, but somewhere between an hour and two hours maximum to be operating on the inside of the heart. And getting in can take you three hours sometimes. Getting out can take you three hours, but the bit in the middle is an hour to two hours. And um, and at that time limit means that you have to um, focus really hard during that central part of the operation. So at the end of it, when you've fixed it and you take the clamp off and you reperfuse the heart with warm blood, the first moment that you have a sense of um, happiness, of completion, of winning is when the heart starts to beat again. Wow. And, you, um, and if it beats and it's the right colour and all the blood's wow. going around in the right direction, that's a cool feeling. There's no I can't
1: about. imagine anything better.
2: Uh, but it's not the end. Because then your machine is still supporting your circulation. So there's another phase when you've stopped the bleeding, if you like, where you start to wean the child from the heart-lung machine. You have to disconnect the heart language and say, is this heart fixed well enough to take over pumping back around the body? So that's phase two. And then phase three is a much longer one. They've got to get out of hospital well and lead a normal life. So it's no good having an outcome which you measure in one minute, 30 minutes, 30 days. The outcome that matters on on child's heart surgery is over life, not over 30 days. It's nice that they survive 30 days and it used to be the measure of success. Because the mortality was so high when I started. But now the mortality due US is 0.9% or less. So 90 over 99% of people come through here and survive. Um, the most complex congenital heart surgery.
1: And so what do you I mean you know obviously you say the success story is the ones that go on and prosper and, mm-hmm. and lead you know relatively normal lives. Do you think about your patients a lot then? Do you think about them? Yeah. You know, what and are they doing right touch. now? And they, what, do they? they? Stay do they? What,
2: hundreds of patients? Yeah. Well, not hundreds because there's a most people. Eighty-eight percent of people have one operation. And you never see them again, and they never want to see you again. They're glad that horrible phase of their life is over. So if you've got a baby under one, and it, you know you've got enough problems going on when the baby's under one, let alone having to have heart surgery, and then they're gone, they think it's a big relief, and mm. the last thing they want to do is come back or see the people who caused their child pain, or, mm. or well, them pain. Well, save you know. their lives. But. Yes, I mean, and, and of course, that's how they feel, but mm. no, the, the, then mm. there's a the group of patients you see over and over again, or the ones who had something so horrible that it was a real piece of work to sort mm. it out, mm. and um, they definitely stay in touch, and you get, you know, and, and at random, you might suddenly get to, an invitation to a wedding, or uh, often with someone graduating from medical school which sort of makes me feel good that you had some hand in that yeah, that's um, amazing and uh, th- those those moments are indescribable really
1: I bet so when did you first realise that this was a path that you wanted to pursue?
2: Um, well, I, I went to medical school when I was 17 I didn't know what a doctor was really I could, the only things I could do at school were biology and French, and there wasn't much of an outlet for French biologists at the time. Um, I had one of those charismatic biology teachers who said, why don't you try something, and he sent me off to... It's all about the teacher. It's all about the teacher. Dave Holford, his name was. See, you remember fantastic. his name.
3: Yeah,
1: so, my brother
2: became a radiologist and a naturalist, was motivated by the same man. Wow. It's fantastic. He ended up as a, a jazz musician in Paris, which is even better. Um... And an English teacher called Martin Axford, who I'm still working down the reading list that you know he set out for us. They were quite important. Um, anyway, I went to Newcastle, which. We had the cheapest beer, and, uh, and, the, and, the, and sort of I, know, I was 17, so I wasn't really allowed in the pub, so it seemed like a really cool thing. And the most scantily
1: clad ladies. They were very cold. I remember and going the up there when I was at uni <laughs> and thinking, how a bit it's colder up here, yeah. and they're wearing less, I don't
2: get that. Yeah, no, that that was sustained. You never went out as a single man on Thursday nights, which is <laughs> hen night. Oh yeah, that's true. Um, anyway, that that was very good, but um, they, they run a really good medical school, and we started dissecting the human body I didn't know that, it was an accident and they started dissecting the human body at 17 the first week and they were dissecting this bit of the neck just behind your sh- sh- off the top of your shoulder called the posterior triangle of the neck and we were looking at each other saying nothing ever happens there, what's that for? You know, it's just a piece of skin and muscle and then we were dragged over the road to the emergency room and there was someone with a knife sticking out of the posterior triangle of the neck and we thought, oh, that's why we need to know this <laughs> And all the way through the course, they linked up what we were learning with a person. It was probably where I got this there you go, yeah. business of caring about the relationship between the disease and the person. And um, and I sort of uh, and that seemed interesting. So I thought I would probably want to do something practical. And I got the opportunity to go to the States when I was twenty. I went to Chattanooga, Tennessee. To um, I wanted to. I thought I like most medical students so I wanted to be an obstetrician and gynaecologist um, and I was hopeless at that absolutely hopeless and that was spotted quickly and they put me in the emergency room where everybody Maggie May was number one so you can imagine how long ago it was um, The um, everybody who worked there had been in the MASH units in Vietnam so they were unbelievably adept at anything that came their way but they've Before they let me do anything, they made me put Vaseline on my hands, then a pair of very tight rubber gloves, and then more Vaseline, a loose pair of rubber gloves, a blindfold. And then they made me tie knots in a bucket of warm water behind my back with single-handed right hand, single-handed left hand, and then two hands. And they wouldn't let me do anything until I could do that. And within a week there was um, some sort of rioting going on and a woman got shot in the abdomen and I was the only pair of hands available and they said, tie off her iliac artery, which I could do. And that moment of realising that a practical skill could save a life was why I went into surgery, absolutely for sure.
1: Wow. Um,
2: and I've never... That's heard. a
1: great story. Yeah. I can't believe that they actually yeah. got you to do that. Yeah. And
2: well, there's no one there. You do, you do what you... Yeah. Humans are really good at adapting under pressure, as yeah. you can see uh, you know, all over the world, given the violence that's around at the moment. People try and save lives, and ordinary squaddies in the field can now do the most amazing first yeah. aid once they've been properly trained.
1: Were you surprised um, by how calm you were under pressure as well?
2: No, I was you
1: already knew panicking that. like that. You were panicking? I no, you weren't. You I, weren't letting um, you show.
2: I don't know really, I can't remember that I just f- I found it stimulating and I I. one of the other things we discovered when I interviewed all my colleagues was that there is uh, about 95% of them go calmer when it gets tense really? when there's noise or trouble, that's the moment they recognise that they have to acquire extra leadership skills, yeah. not demonstrate any tension spread calm, don't yeah, spread anger yeah. and the other 5% find it hard to do that. That's I'm really saying. interesting.
1: Well, I, did <coughs> a, I did a day once as a um, as a paramedic on a bicycle around central London, That's a good training. just to just to see what it was like. And um, so I, I, I shadowed this guy called Owen on his bicycle around Soho. And it was genuinely one of the best days of my life. I'm sure it was. And he was so calm. But it was infectious because yeah. he was calm. I then felt calm because yeah. I thought I would get quite stressed. Seeing somebody um, in distress
2: some, uh, what it serves it no
1: purpose, does it? If you're going to inject know, more drama into the situation. Well,
2: you can see that in Formula One at the weekends. Yeah. The, the, the calm ones get through that dreadful mess that you know is on the road. You, you, they find ways around it, and then they don't stress for the next lap. As yeah. soon as you're tensed, you don't drive so well. And I think that we, um, we, we, I see that a lot. The best surgeons I've seen all around the world are definitely those who achieve a sort of nirvana at that moment of, of calm. And, well the, the tenser it gets, the calmer they become. And that is infectious.
1: Yeah. And and I've also been hearing about your... the, the importance you put on, on good teamwork. Mm. And and presumably spreading that calm to your nuclear team and then your wider team is crucial. I mean, you wouldn't be able to get much done if you couldn't.
2: No. I mean, I, I looking back... Um, First of all, I have to acknowledge that this is not, you know, it's not me. This this is working in a good team to start with. Yeah. And um, Mark and his philosophy, uh, my predecessor Mark, and his philosophy, um, and meeting someone called James Reason. I don't know if you've heard of James mm-hmm. Reason. A, he was a professor of organizational psychology in Manchester. He okay. Was the brains behind many of the safest organisations in the country nuclear industry airline industry writing down what it was that made them safe Um, and uh, that culture and learning from them is what we try to inculcate into our teams so um, you start off by uh, much of it is about leadership at local level I'd say it's it's trying to make everybody in the team feel as though they are contributing to being world champion Mm. you're not doing it yourself um, that's what Ross Bourne used to say in mm. order to be the world champion F1 team everybody in the team must want to be the world champion at what they do mm. at what they do not anything else so that is something you have to lead towards which means setting clear I, I, all these goals and target stuff sounds a bit corporate but actually mm. you have to say value driven really what are we here for What are we doing this for? And once you bring that back to the child and excellence and the family and also reputation and competitiveness, all of those things play in. And we spent a lot of time um, saying what did people think was important? And in the end we all agreed the same things that I spoke to you about a little while ago. Mm. Um, Plus innovation. Innovation was the additional one. Um, Everybody Everybody, including the cleaners, wanted us to be doing something new all the time. Right. That's what they would boast about in the pub at the weekend. And um, it, I think those. then we set out some metrics that we could see as a mm, team every yeah. week on a big screen. And um, once you just put things that we've all agreed are important on the screen, everybody wants to be better next week. Yeah. so you don't have to do much management once you once you choose the metrics well you just show people what it is that you're looking for and they tend to get better you sometimes don't know how they've got better but they get better
1: so how do people um, prioritise between surgery and research surgery and progress because you know uh, it, you, it, yeah. if you give your attention to one
2: you it's a tough question but I think it comes in phases in your career um, so you can't get a job without having done some research, I mean if it's talking about surgeons to start with Mm. you can't really get a job unless you've done some research because it's so competitive Mm. so you have to compete to get into medical school to compete to get out of it compete to get jobs once you've um, once you're on a training scheme you then are expected to do some research and you're judged by a number of things your uh, ability to do the clinical stuff but also what you've produced intellectually Mm. Um, which may be teaching or it may be um, research it may be almost everybody that we appoint has got a higher degree almost everyone mm. a PhD or an MD and that will be uh, with an element of research training into a lot of research training and you're exp- you wouldn't get a job at, at GOS or say the Royal Mastern or Stanmore or any of these specialist hospitals unless you were going to contribute
1: but then, when, when you are in your role, how much of your time has to so, be dedicated? Yeah, so after to that it varies, forward. it varies, mm.
2: um, so at the beginning you'd be operating flat out, so mm. you've got your practical skills honed, you'd also be re- applying for research grants to get money for your research, and mm-hmm. then you divide up your time as best you could, and you negotiate that annually with your head of department, so you have productive years where you've got lots and lots of research. Um, and you maybe you're a bit less operating that year and somebody else picks up the slack, mm. or um, you um, haven't had an idea for a while and so you operate all the time.
1: So I think in simple terms if I've got a pound in my pocket I'm always slightly torn as to whether if, I, if I'm if i going to give it to Macmillan or to Cancer Research you know looking after people who are currently suffering or preventing those in the future. It's
2: I, I, who knows? Basically. It's impossible, isn't uh, it? I mean, the the, and the whole concept of charity is very tricky, anyway, isn't mm. it? You know, you feel that there's some sort of social responsibility we all ought to pick up out of our taxation, mm. and um, but the um, and, and charity rece- reception is quite fashionable. You know, there are charities which are fashionable for a period of time. Mm. Depends on the media coverage, and um I. I, I I don't know if you knew, but I, I lost my younger son mm. some time ago and um, I was really horrified to discover that he died suddenly of epilepsy during the night it was his first fittest, or oh, maybe second. We didn't know about that. What, you didn't know he had epilepsy? No, no, I no. You
1: didn't even know he was epileptic? No, he just woke
2: up, died, and woke up dead in the morning, yeah. Um, oh my
1: God. What what, I and mean, what did you initially think?
2: I didn't think at all. I mean we didn't think, we were just completely blown away. My wife and elder son found him and it was so it was a workable. Um and you you don't think. No, but I, when I started to understand it a little more, it was um, shocking to discover the difference in money that was going into that amount of research where quite a lot of people died suddenly. And sudden cardiac death, which is about the same number of people dying suddenly, but they die suddenly on the football field in front of a lot of people during the day. And all the epileptics were dying at night in sleep, and it was treated as a crime scene because they were either drugs or suicide, as far as the police were concerned. Wow. So there's sort of... And nobody gave money to it because epilepsy is still um, seen to be something like witchcraft or you know some black magic thing. People walk on the other side of the road rather than trying to resuscitate them because they're twitching. So there's all sorts of psychological barriers to why people give money and cultural barriers to how a disease is treated, which, you know, haven't changed.
1: I mean, I can't imagine how horrific it must be to to lose a child. To lose a child to a condition that you didn't even know they had. Particularly someone like you who clearly...
2: i never even heard of it, to be frank. We had, I think there were five or six professors of medicine at the funeral, and none of us had heard of it.
1: Of the condition of dying suddenly from sudden, it?
2: Sudden, it's called Sudep, sudden death in epilepsy.
1: My God, so how long was it until you found out what it was that he died from?
2: So, um, well, it was, a, uh, was hinted at by one of my friends, and then uh, the post mortem report. My God.
1: And has, it, has that changed your approach in any way? Did it change your approach in any way well, it changed, to work?
2: Uh, it changed everything. Did it? I mean, you, I, I think people talk about grief, and um, I knew about the seven stages of grief and various descriptions. Nobody tells you they all come at once, or some days they don't come at all, or that you don't lose your sense of humorness to locate a love. But they don't tell you you're changed. As an individual, you're a different person afterwards, um, and you do. not everybody's changed in a different ways, so you can't sort of generalise. But all the people I know to whom this has happened are different, and and everybody else's life moves on at the same pace. You know, they're their normal pace. They don't know that you're different, so there's sort of tensions that arise in friendships, and you see other people's kids grow up and have children. And that you know, you never get used to that. Mm-hmm. it's. Um, indescribable but it, it i suppose it's helped me understand um, my patients what they've suffered over the years mm-hmm. a little bit better but i don't know that it's made me um a different and maybe better doctor or anything It's just me- i know i'm different
1: H- and how do you think you're different i
2: tell you how to describe i I. I, I su- I know what I what was different immediately, which was that I when I came back to work which I probably did a bit too soon um, I couldn't handle the tiny little arguments you always have in your place of work every day they're just what you do that's work um, and they seemed huge and out of all and completely unimportant so if somebody sort of said something and I would react I suppose badly um, overreact and I um, that's when I became medical director. Our CEO at the time was fantastically sensitive and said, "You know, you should try doing something different." Um, so I, uh, I then had bigger arguments with people I didn't know personally so well, and that was easier to manage. Mm. Um, and I, I, that's when I started, I suppose, becoming more interested in the way things were run, mm. as opposed to how to do the technical detail. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean it was career changing, but it was emotionally much more changing, of course it remains an issue, but difficult at home. I'm
1: sure. And, and, and from listening to you talk about the, the methods and the procedures you put in place in order to guarantee good results, I guess, massively, uh, must be massively frustrating and, and crippling in a way, to not have been able to put anything in place for your own son, because what could uh, you have done? I mean, yeah,
2: I, mean uh, I don't know, I, I always, I think in retrospect I feel um, I certainly haven't done enough about his disease, and, you know, I see people, you know, setting up charities and campaigning on behalf of their disease, but i found that quite hard, mm. um, there are quite good charities and I got involved trying to nudge them in certain directions, but I didn't think I was very successful at that, mm. and perhaps I should do more.
1: Is that something that you could revisit, you know? Oh yeah, I think it's always any possible point. to revisit something. Mm. And how about the rest of your family? How how, how have they coped?
2: Um, oh, it's just, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's always anniversaries, you know, mm-hmm. it's, they, we don't cope very well. We, we, uh, well that's not fair, no, my, my, I mean he was 26 when he died, my, um, his brother is fine and um, he's two years older and has, runs a filmmaking company. Um, my wife and I find it quite hard. to Still, my wife obviously more than me because she found him and was at mm-hmm. home more. And, um, yeah, women are different from men in the end. That's the other thing you discover. Is you know people talk about that difference, but you don't until you see it, mm. and experience it. You don't realize quite how differently you react. I mean, men on the whole do sport and work to get over issues and. And women talk to their friends and can talk about it, mm. and men don't. You know, so you get more into that. I certainly did that.
1: And uh, is there advice that you would give to somebody, you know, and, and have you had to give that advice to people within the hospital, you know, when you're having to cope yeah, with? Yeah, I have, but I, uh,
2: you can't. I mean, in the Because <laughs> it's so personal. Yeah, I mean, what, there are various things that I found utterly irritating. Um, really? uh, I you know. Sort of the various. Um, professionals involved, the counsellors and the, the people who do death certificates in the calendar, just didn't get it and they were really insensitive, mm. working to a formula or or just behaving insensitively. Mm. And you just wanted out of their clutches very quickly, mm. at least I did. Others, people feel the need to have counselling for decades and I, I, I just couldn't handle that.
1: Mm. I suppose the problem is, is when people try to apply, apply one size fits all. Yeah was exactly It's right. ridiculous you to can't.
2: do. So what you have to do, I think, when I, if you ask me how I've dealt with other people, fortunately death is rare now. Mm. How um, rare? 0.9%. 0.9,
1: yes, or you did say. Yeah. That's astonishing. But you, know, point, but but you the, must see at the cases. other end of that. that yeah. you,
2: deal, you know, people, senior people are dealing with the di- most difficult cases, so you tend to have more deaths sometimes. Right, right, now. yes, of course. Um,
1: of course, yeah. But when I started
2: in the 70s, you know, a child was dying every other day.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify.
1: God, I mean, I'm seeing so many parallels with F1, and I know you have through the years as well. And you, you know, you've worked in Formula One, but certainly it was the case in F1 that many would die in the 70s yeah. and through, through procedural changes. That thankfully has has changed. Um, I'm always keen to, you know, take a moment to remember Jules Bianchi because everyone says, well, you know, it's so much safer now, but we still lost Jules. And um, so, you know. I mean, when you see the film safe. of
2: that incident and you think, what on earth were they doing I know. with that in the dark, going that fast in the wet with some truck on the track? Yeah. The bit sharp bits sticking out of it. All I mean, the variables, know. it was the same. You know, that's where that's James tool. Reason's mm. contribution to safety was something called the Swiss cheese um, rationale. you called it the Swiss cheese effect. So, you know, nothing really ever happens because of one cause. Mm. It, you, various. Things have to concatenate for a disaster to happen. So it wasn't Jules Bianchi's fault that he was going a fraction too fast. It was a fraction too fast, but a bit dark, but a bit wet. Plus, that truck was on the road where mm-hmm. it shouldn't have been. Because
1: it had already been a crash before. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it, Adrian Sutherland. Yeah. They, and
2: yeah. they would normally have stopped the race at that time, but they didn't, mm-hmm. and they weren't getting good enough cars back. So, who do you blame? And then, Daily Mail's philosophy is, is to come out the next morning whose fault is this? Mm-hmm. And it's no one's fault, and and James Reason pointed out that you needed to, he thought of each of these processes like a piece of Swiss cheese with holes in, and it was only when the holes all lined up that you got a disaster at the end. So what you need to do is to invent a piece of cheddar cheese that will slide in a process which is infinitely safer, or reduce the size of the holes in each process. Now, intellectually is a really nice model because Mm. it makes you not blame, it makes you think, okay, how do we stop this the next Mm. time? there's no point in, in in blaming anyone. That's that's
1: pointless. That, it is pointless. But is it not human nature it's to at least, yeah. you know? And I'm sure for your own son's death, you wanted to know, you wanted a hook to hang it on and say, you know,
2: or um, did you? No, no, I don't think so. No, I, no, I mean, I just didn't. It just was so horrific and remains so. Um, I mean, I think. Medically and scientifically, there's so much more that could be done, and legally, particularly around coroners, there's so much more that could be done about it. That's a whole other podcast, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. It's, um, a, um, and something that you know, if I could change the law and the way people behave, one would, but um, it's not going to happen.
1: Mm. My dad's best friend actually died of epilepsy, but we knew he had epilepsy, and we kind of knew what to do when he had a fit. But my God, you're right about the reaction that most people give. It scared so many people to see it. I mean, even me, and I'd, s- I'd seen him have two or yeah, three fits. Scary. It is scary to see it. Um, but he, he had a t- terrible fit, and then he, he died in hospital a couple of days later. Yeah. Um, he was probably in his early 40s yeah. at the time. But uh,
2: you know, no one can as I say no one can prepare for it, and you you have to fight the battles you can fight mm. and, uh, mm. it's clearly easier for me to fight battles in the things I know about than mm. the things I don't know about, mm. but at um, best it
1: makes you hungry to know about more, doesn't
2: it yeah, yeah always
1: mm. um just bring it back to Formula One again, because I know a lot of the listeners will be interested in the mm. parallels that you that you've drawn in the work that you've done in f one um. One thing that really interests me, because a lot of people feel that F one is elitist and no,
2: well, it is elitist. It, it is
1: rich, expensive, politically dubious. Uh, yes, sure, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think more and more, uh, particularly in the in the current current climate, it's becoming more accessible and more interesting and more relevant. At least I hope it is, because um, for everything that we do that is relevant to to the man on the street, woman on the street, kid on the street, or car. Um, suddenly gives it a different sense of purpose at least in my mind and I remember going up to Birmingham Children's Hospital and seeing that some of the uh, technology that McLaren were using mm-hmm. was being implemented yeah. there yeah. and it was able to predict yeah, if a child had a problem before it became terminal
2: that's right so um, basically we were looking at, and we and, and um, the team in Birmingham and Boston and Toronto simultaneously were looking at squiggly lines on screens coming from engines, and thought if you were able to predict tactics, strategy, component failure, and it's just a bunch of coloured lines on a screen, and we had a bunch of coloured lines on a screen and a child who ended up with a cardiac arrest, shouldn't we be able to find out what's going on, predict it from the patterns of those things? And so we used the same maths, principal component analysis, and worked first of all with McLaren and their applied electronics division and then with a company called Etiometry in the US, who are a spin-off of NASA, uses the same stuff. Um, and actually it's used quite a lot in other industries, we discovered. But those maths help you predict, and by working together with other hospitals, you move from data collection into big data, and big data into artificial intelligence, and that's where the next big step will be. Um, but there's a huge uh, or, not a huge, there's a significant gap uh, to be filled, which I think companies like McLaren Applied Electronics or Williams Energy levels now are very high in this field. Um, I think that uh, it's sensor technology that's going to have the biggest impact, because if you think of a car, what, and, you know, several thousand sensors now, several thousand channels of input of data coming back from a car. The, the the usefulness of that depends on the quality of the sensor, its reliability, how robust the data is, how you store it and how quickly it's transferred to the people who can use it, how it's analysed, and then the added insight from the people who've been doing this, like Adrian and Newey for 20, 30 years, who look at that and say, no, it doesn't make sense. So that is the insight that professionals still need before you can get to the AI bit. Mm. Now, if you... If you Think about that. how quickly that's happened in Formula 1 where it's engineering race and how much more difficult that is in a biological race where you've got an interface between human and sensor. But that interface has to be perfect and the data have to be reliable mm. and shared and transparent and understood by all the teams doing this work before we can do the rest of it. Mm. But it's disruptive. It's truly disruptive to the way we work. And I mean, if I take something not from my field to try and explain that, um, if you imagine having a new knee replaced, as most of us who've done any sports, start to feel something go wrong, um, if you get a new knee, at the moment you're seen afterwards by the surgeon or by a physician to say, how are you? Can you walk up the stairs? Are so you doing your job? And you, th- you think, well, that seems a bit pointless. Why have I come from Aberdeen to London to tell this person that I can walk? When, if they were to implant the sensors in the knee at the point of manufacture and broadcast it to my computer back in Woking or wherever um, then the you'd have all of F1 stuff, so you could have someone receiving the same data in, in Woking, redesigning the component because you've got new load conditions you could have performance conditions which would mean you I can just not send for you if you're in a green zone, yellow zone, I'll phone you up and say don't run, and red zone I'm going to send a taxi to Aberdeen to fetch you down because it'll be cheaper for me to sort you out but I get paid to see you in outpatients I mean the hospital gets paid yeah. for me seeing. Yeah. so the business model on which the whole of medicine is constructed is going to be disrupted by the quality of sensor delivery and no one has really thought this through no one's thought about how you, how you price this stuff who's accountable for the algorithm how you regulate the algorithm it's okay if Red Bull are just doing it inside their simulator and they they eat up their own dirt as it were. But if this is a everybody potentially suing everybody else as happens in healthcare, especially in America, then someone's got to be accountable for every step of that process. And you've got to find new ways of buying and selling and trading these products along the way. So who's accountable? The manufacturer, the person who designed the algorithm, me for being the doctor who put yeah, it in? Yeah, yeah. You can just imagine. But it's in the end, the sensor is the key thing. So this is where I think the F1 model, and to some extent the airline industry as well, is about um, really sophisticated engineering, and then resilience, and then hard data, which you can see and is pretty well transparent amongst the teams themselves, they're all knowing what's going on, but they get more, they're playing with the detail, they're Mm. not playing with the big principle.
1: I mean, they claim not to know,
2: but they know. know. They all know. I mean, I've, yeah, I know they don't um, But the, to me, those models are really interesting. And, yeah. and, and the aviation extension of that is not that they're not doing this every other week. They're doing it every hour or every mm. two minutes at Heathrow. And they don't crash. And that's because they've engineered out failure and they've got robust backup systems all the way along mm. the line. So we need to get into that kind of thinking, and reliable software. At the moment, there's a guy, a guy called Harold Thimbleby, lovely name. And Harold has drawn attention to the fact that most of the little bits that we use, the software and components that are used in medicine, have been very badly designed electronically. They haven't gone through that same reliability and robustness and safetyness that you would have to do to in an airline. Um, they just haven't and so they use an old chip make it work and it's liable to fail or be calibrated wrongly you give the wrong dose of something and you would never know you press a button and you think giving 0.1 of a mil and it might be giving something else it's out of your control and yet you are sued if you like so there's a whole bunch of stuff that needs to get up to the engineering level of F1 and and particularly the airline industry in medicine. Um, that is, is not is barely discussed, and uh, really important.
1: And uh, this kind of cross pollination is something that will, as you say, c- c- massively disruptive and, and change the face of medicine potentially. But who, who's going to lead the charge on that? Well, it, because um, I, I, <coughs> I think, as you say, everyone's busy doing their day
2: jobs. Yeah, but everybody's. Uh, I mean, we did this work with McLaren originally, and mm. then with Ferrari in the in the two thousands when we were trying to get handover of patients safer from one place to another. The transferring from theatre to, so yeah, intensive, to the care. intensive care. You know, right. Which was a we couldn't afford the engineering solution that was put forward to us first and we went for the human factors, interestingly.
1: what, what So you tweaked it based on the pit stop model?
2: Yeah, it was completely a pit stop model. Um, so the idea was that um, when you, it was discovered or observed, A, in the Bristol inquiry into mm. all the children's deaths in Bristol in the late not a part of the last century. And, um, and then afterwards, Mark de la Valde did a study where he watched surgeons all over the country, right. looking for error, basically. And it, uh, one of the bits that was dangerous, much to everybody's surprise, was moving the baby from the operating room to the intensive care unit. Because that's not really your job. You know, your job is operating or intensive care. This is just a, a journey so it wasn't so not enough thought had gone into that no thought it was a wow you know you're knackered at the end of the operation and these guys are worried. these guys are worried about taking this new baby and the journey is just something you do to get them from one place to another so when that that, and everything changes all the power supplies are different they go from AC to DC you have to disconnect the baby from a warm environment put them on a trolley the ventilator is taken away and an anesthetist squeezes a bag and then you get to the other end and all of that's got to be reconnected So there's, and, and, you know, uh, on a a podcast you can't explain the massive numbers of pipes which are millimetres wide, and, you know, they all have to be reconnected and not twisted or not broken, not mixed up, and there's drains and everything. So all of that has to be reconnected accurately, and all the monitoring, the electronic monitoring has to be reconnected accurately. So it's like, a, 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 as the F1 teams do, they have to set all that up each week take it down again. We were doing that every time the child moved. So um, one, we'd been operating one night and um, we'd, we'd been talking about this problem, about wh- how it occurred, and then watched a pit stop in the Spanish Grand Prix. And it was the days when fuel was involved. Mm-hmm. And McLaren changed the tyres and put fuel in in 6.8 seconds. And uh, in those days there were little metal flaps that took data from the car. I don't mm-hmm. you remember those ones.
1: Six point eight seconds sounds like a lifetime now. Oh, yeah, they're I doing two point two at the know, weekend. One point seven. One point seven, yeah. is the record in yeah.
2: practice. But they, um, to me, uh, when we were watching that, we suddenly suddenly saw that it was the same process. Um, partly because there was an aerial shot of a pit stop, and we were had a sort of mental picture of the baby in the middle as the precious parcel, the car, and the and the driver, versus the baby in the bed. you know. And all these people with jobs to do around it, and um, so we, um, my colleague Alan Goldman, who is a South African and fearless, phoned them up from McLaren up, and they came to see us next week. Extraordinary! He got to put through to the pits. We never know how that happened, but he did. And um, they came to see us and said, "Oh, we can engineer, engineer this out for you. We need a bed, an operating table which has its own power supply and all the rest of it, which is also a trolley and can become the bed." it was a great idea that solves the problem altogether but you'd have to replace everything all the operating tables all the trolleys and all the beds and the NHS simply yeah, wasn't going to spend money on that could afford it yeah no. and if, especially since the engineering was at top level of course um, so we were put in touch via Shell and Bernie Eccleston with um, Ferrari who were really interested and they um, sent um, their guys over to watch us and thought we were a bunch of idiots, a bunch of tossers actually. Really? Because we I said, couldn't work out who was in charge of this whole process.
1: And well, of course... So the human element was wrong as well.
2: Well, th- that was the way in to thinking, how could this change? And and um, you have to know something about doctors and nurses that we're all trained to help. So um, if, if something happens, you rush to help. And you take over somebody else's job because you're there. So if you, know, if you had a, a, the thing called drains where the blood comes out of the baby or into, the, into bottles that you just want to watch, and if you were there first, you'd connect them up. Or if you were there first, you'd connect up the monitor. If you were there first, you'd do something else. Um, and you'd start talking first because surgeons like talking. So the, the, we, by writing the process down, which we'd never done, it turned out to be more complicated than a pit stop, much to our surprise. And um, each phase of it involved risks that we hadn't discussed. And much of it ended up being work out how, how leadership is transferred, when to speak, how to speak. We had a dancer who taught us body language, where to stand and how not to look aggressive. And making people speak up, the most junior people speak up and say, "You know, the equivalent of your front wheel is loose, don't you think you ought to know about that? Um, and having a very strict ordered transfer and it was very simple it wasn't complicated, it wasn't rocket science but um, when it was eventually published and picked up by the Wall Street Journal surprisingly we discovered that these sort of handover issues were incredibly common in everything Me- not medicine but also in industry every shift change, in manufacturing industry, every time a piece of information was transferred in a, an architect's firm from one team of architects to another team in legal firms from the Know, the drafters to the doers and so on all the way around, something went wrong with every transfer and so by f- by just realising that if you formalise this process which we had not regarded as part of our job if you like, it wasn't work it everything got safer and we reduced the number of errors in our business by f- four times um, which is fantastic I and it's know, been replicated p- and now it's adapted everywhere
1: Yeah because I can imagine the, 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 the consequences of, of, of Process would be huge, whether it's as you say in industry or medicine or yeah. whatever. Um, and interesting that nobody is taking responsibility for it because one group has one set of jobs, one ha- and there's yeah. this kind of no man's land in no, the middle. No man's
2: land in the middle, and that is a very classic place for the gaps to appear in any organisation. And uh, it made me realise that we we don't do process very well in healthcare. Lots of people do, of course, and and you know parts of healthcare are incredibly well processed, but. Um, it, it, there weren't many skills in that era in process mapping. Nobody had done it. And uh, it was interesting. Um, one of the things I keep wishing that we'd spent more time and would like to spend more time is, um, is working with the logistics people in F1 oh, and, yeah. um, and others, because the, list, the race always starts on time.
1: It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I do think the logistical feat between getting... Uh, Everything from one racetrack to another yeah. is astonishing. I mean, they they are they are dismantling and um, already shipping stuff before the race yeah, is and, finished. You know, and
2: linking all of that to uh, shipping stuff by sea between mm. the continental parts of the race. So, well, I dread th- to think what's
1: going to happen this year because we've got our first triple header. Yeah,
2: that's going to be full that's, on. It's going to be amazing. Isn't yeah, it? but if you think um, we, it's very rare in hospitals for an operating list to start on time. So the, the exam question for me is, what are you doing differently? Yeah. And much of it was, I think it goes back to that desire to help organisationally that we feel we're helping. So you plan forwards optimistically for being a good person on Thursday morning at eight o'clock and everybody turns up, but then something's missing from the equation. Um, and uh, I remember sitting, I think it was in, in Mercedes, in Mercedes factory, Formula One factory, um talking to them and said how how do you make this happen and they said well we plan backwards from what they call the golden moment you're playing backwards you're not planning forwards it's all the dependencies that it's obvious anybody's done any planning but an idiot like me didn't see it so you see all those dependencies and they say who needs to be there to start the list what do you need to know is there a bed in the ICU have you got the blood is the false leg there when do you need to know that by? Who do you need to make these decisions? At what time? So, you know, all of this is adding up. And, um, in, and then the second question was, was much more interesting, I think, philosophically about the difference between uh, F1, if you like, and possibly the airline industry, certainly F1, is what's the consequence of not being there? Mm. So what would happen to you or to the team or to the people involved if, it, if you weren't there for the start of the race? Or two hours before to make a particular decision, or five hours before if you had to decide whether you would race or not race. Who would make that decision? What state would they be in? And if they weren't there, what would be the consequence? Mm. And that's just simply not that level of discipline. I don't think is there. And if I, if looking back on my own career, I think that um, there's this sort of interesting transition between professionalism and discipline which is quite subtle. And um, mostly you don't need any discipline in a profession because you're so highly motivated. Mm. But when you're under pressure, cis- as a system under pressure, discipline is critical. Mm. And it's not not present in the way that it is in an F1 team. So
1: can you impose discipline now? Or is it a cultural thing that has to be there from the off? I, I, don't,
2: I don't think imposing discipline ever works, mm. um, except in the military maybe. Mm. But uh, I, th- I think it's a gradual cultural shift, mm. and you need strong leadership um, over time, mm. because you're always going to get resistance, from, and we, we're dealing with lots of large groups of people, with trade unions the British Medical Association the Royal College of Nursing, everybody will have their own axe to grind over what you're allowed to say to an individual person but actually I think in terms of writing future contracts, we need to think very carefully about discipline and what's expected from you and that, that needn't mm. be an unpleasant thing, it's just a um, a cultural shift over time.
1: I have to say that from day one in the paddock, I recognised that if you are even a minute late for anything, that's it. You just don't get the interview. You don't no. get no. The, the results that you need and want. And I can only assume that this is a culture it's a
2: deeply embedded, culture.
1: embedded yeah. and have to take... Well, the person to take the credit for that <coughs> would have to be Bernie Eccleston. Yeah, well, because yeah, maybe. I mean, I mean I, I, it's, it's, it's just, I, I, I'm, it's part of sure. the very fibre of F1's being, we are always on time for everything. If you're even a, you're even a minute late for the bus, the bus just goes yeah. in the morning, and you're left at the hotel, yeah. and then that's a big black mark next to your name.
2: Yeah, that's how, I mean, I think that's, that's how I was brought up, although it didn't seem like discipline. It was just, yeah. passively, that was my training. I think that's slightly drifted, and... Um, we could probably do with more of that, but it's not. It, it should never discipline. Should be cultural. It shouldn't be punitive. I don't think. No. You no. have to say, everybody. What do you think is important here? Yeah. And that there's that, Clive time. You know, we've talked about Clive Woodward a few months ago. I remember hearing him talk, and it's something I've remembered very well. Uh, he said, you know, we when you there were, I had a couple of rules. The first one was Clive time, which is that I'm there five minutes beforehand and you will be there on time. And if you're not there on time, you're not going to be selected. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know what? How it's many a... times do you need to say it? Well, exactly.
1: It? <laughs> I mean, I am <laughs> never on time in my personal life and yet I am never late enough oh,
2: Exactly. So, so got, it proves you can do you know, it. It's, it drives it's, my husband it's mad. a statement but. and consequence. Yeah. But yeah. without the consequence, yeah. there is no discipline. Yeah. And it, 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 so you can't... You can't... Um, not follow up on things, mm. and there's been a great tradition of that.
1: I do also think in Formula One we put such an emphasis, for obvious reasons, on time and timings, and the, you know the hundredths of a second mm. s- between two drivers is is the race won or lost, and so we do think about time and. Yeah, being punctual I mean, a lot.
2: That's why cardiac surgery, has been at, cardiac surgery particularly has been at the forefront of many of the changes in developing safety and outcome reporting in medicine. Uh, because it's, it's got very visible outcomes mm. life or death, it started as... Um, it's much got, more important
1: than a race starting on
2: time. Yeah, of course. Unless you crash the car. Mm. Um, but the... Yeah, so I think that the the, the transparency, we've had a very, very strong tradition of transparency in our outcomes. And that drives performance. So your results are visible to the world Mm. on, on the screen and on the website. And the detail below that is something you use competitively within the organisations of Formula One. And for me, that is the same thing. In cardiac surgery, we now publish our results in public by name every year. They're seen if people want to go digging for them, and you can get quite a lot of detail. Um, And increasingly, the demand for public exposure results has spread to other disciplines within medicine. I mean, you've got very—it's relatively easy for us. You know, if you ask me how good a cardiac surgeon I am, there's results out there you can have a look at. Mm. But the exam question is, how good a dermatologist are you? How do you measure how good is a dermatologist? That's much harder.
1: I would always say by how young the person looks.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a plastic surgeon. Yeah.
1: Okay. My dermatologist is just someone that makes my skin look nice oh, after okay. a facial. Yeah, it looks like it's that. very different. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, you've learned a lot from Formula One and, and, and put, put that into practice, but what else can we learn from you? Uh, I,
2: well, I think... Um, Apart from perhaps being a bit more human. No, I think it would, it would, from, from us it would be probably if I was value, value driven so there can't just be one value I mean winning is I mean it, it's actually winning and money isn't it the two things and actually Formula One is a window on an engineering business hmm. it's often a lost leader for the engineering business yep. if, if truthful I mean why would Red Bull don't do much engineering they hmm. make drinks um, so you know it seems to me that uh, what you're learning from us is probably not possible. I, th- I think it's what I see is I do some work now with a software company and uh, I see companies being driven by quarterly returns. I see um, the bottom line sensitive activity being the driver and values have to be forced into corporate life in a way that here yeah, people arrive living them. Mm. Um, and it's very easy to make people work for babies and families and people with cancer. It's it's not hard because that's what you want to do as a human being. In a corporate culture, you have to work to get those values meaningful. And there's an awful you know, you go into companies and you see their values written on the wall, there's eighty five percent of them the same. And they're very trite. They they feel as though someone's imposed them on the organization. Whereas the ones that where you see it works are those who are in a place which feels happy and they've worked them out themselves and they aren't about the bottom line, they're about something else.
1: Which is exactly what Great Ormond Street feels like, Yeah, really does, it's just, it's tangible
2: Yeah, and that's what we're proud of, but it doesn't mean to say we don't think about it often and we have to Mm. you have to go back to your people at regular intervals to make sure that you haven't drifted away from what those values mm. mean to them. Mm. You know, the population of people who work here is very different culturally to the ones who were there 50 years ago, but the values, and the values may be named differently, mm. but they will end up being what they want and what they feel are important, what makes them stay here for no money, no pay rise for 10 years, the people who work here, you know. And they're getting peanuts compared with, you know, we have won rewards, if you like. Mm. Um, but we don't do it for money you just don't look after children for money. Otherwise, you'd be in Harley Street doing facelifts.
1: Again, I go back to that day in Soho. I felt this unbelievable sense of elation, and 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 I felt, you know, I I went and sat back in my um, little balcony at home. I lived in a flat down by the river. And had a beer, and I just sat there. and I said that was one of the most fulfilling yeah. days of my yeah. life. And I wasn't paid anything for it. Never forget it. No, and I just felt charged, emotionally charged from it. It was oh, incredible. We,
2: we, I, I've never had a boring day right, on the street. I have mean, Very rarely seen the same thing twice. So you, uh, I think the, you know, when I, when I retired from clinical practice, my GP, who retired roughly the same age, said, "So, um, retirement's an interesting time. You should do something outside every day. Take as much exercise as you can." and learn something new every day. And actually, that's what I did all my life. You know, I, I learned something new every day, I met amazing people, I uh, cycled to work every day, and it was just a fantastic job. And you came home mostly elated, because things had gone well, mm. and occasionally you just couldn't talk. See, the hard part was coming back when something bad had gone happened to a normal house, and trying to be normal. Mm-hmm. Um, which you try to do. So I think there's a lot of it, maybe that explains quite a lot of how difficult it is when something bad happens to you, but you you are managing deep emotions by either trying not to show them or doing something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, um, as times go by it got better and better and better, the results got better and better, so bad times were a rarer.
1: So uh, I have a, a handful of questions to finish on that I ask or my guests, but actually I feel like you've covered off quite it's a lot of this already? 14
2: units a week, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe you. Um,
1: advice to your younger self. Do you have any? Um, Do you ever sort of look back and either feel sorry for or angry with your younger self? and wish uh, uh, Yeah, I mean, my,
2: my, my um, advice to me would be fairly obvious, given what's happened, to spend more time in the family um I, I never saw them uh, that was and also the culture was if you did try and see your family you were in trouble you know you were your job this your job you it was you had to be here um so and what, so kind that d- was d- what
1: kind of days are you talk what kind of length of days are you talking like
2: oh <laughs> um so well i was on on quarters so, uh, most of my working life after the first, our first six months, I was on call all the time. It was near, in the days where you were resident.
1: That in itself must be exhausting, just to be yeah, on such a it was actually of the
2: easiest time, because we, we looked after each other. Oh. And we didn't have any time to spend any money, so, you know, it was just... Uh, you living was great, actually. We learnt endlessly. OK. But when you went to a rotor, which was one in two or one in three on call, most of my working life at, in cardiac surgery has been doing a one in two rotor. So that you're on call every other night, so I would go in, and, and I mean, and extras which I'll come to in a minute. But I would go in at s- sort of set off from home at six, six thirty. Be here, do a ward round with everybody, and somebody, my my bosses would usually have already been in, check that we'd done everything. Then you have to, you know, do your paperwork, operate all day. And in those early days, there was no, inten- no intensivist, so we had to look after the patients at night and see the patients for the next day. So that was the night. And then you operate all the next day. Bloody hell. And get home 9 o'clock. So you'd start from 6 till 9 the next day, every other day. So you had four hours at home, something like that, five hours. That's that really
1: exhausting. How can you actually perform Everybody
2: was doing it, so it didn't feel it was just what we did. And then... Mm you had to squeeze your research in as well. So when I was a senior oh, registrar, okay. I was also um, doing my research at night on the, my nights off, literally sitting by the bedside with an artificial pancreas playing blood glucose. Um, and my wife, uh, my wife used to come in and help me write it um, in a room where the computer was. It was a PDP-11 We didn't have laptops, you know, letters set to draw the graphs. It was a different time. God, and that's a he,
1: huge commitment from her as well yeah, as a to, to
2: you, it's a family business wow. I, uh, people talk about that a lot and then when I got um, here f- I came from Newcastle to here in 1984 I, again I was on a one in two rotor but actually you had to be second on call because there were things that went wrong so if it got really difficult you were called in again to help the people who were already there so I got home my, my, my wife and, and children were still in Newcastle that's where I was, and I came down here. So I saw them for a day, once every three weeks or something.
1: My God!
2: My son, my eldest son, used to think I lived. You drove past the central station in Newcastle, and he said, "Daddy lives there."
1: Oh. I mean, you say that you would tell yourself to spend more time with your with your children, but if it, th- it wasn't an option, it wasn't like you were no, choosing well, not to be with I them. I would. I
2: think I should have made it an option. Right. Somebody should have stood up to this system, and I didn't. I was a slave to the career, mm. and everybody was. Mm. I mean, you'd have to be pretty unusual to be able to do it. But there were occasions when I, sh- I should could have and should have stood up to it, and I didn't. Mm. So those are the things in retrospect I would do. Mm. Uh, be tougher, younger, probably, with the system. Um, but I uh, and I've thought now whether I would do the same job again. I asked every cardiac surgeon on that. Thing that I did for Gresham about what they whether they would do it again. There wasn't one who said no. Mm. Um, I, I I think I might actually because those days it was all new. Everything we were doing was new every day. Mm. Nobody had done most of the thing. Um, so I I I think I like being in those edges of medicine, the innovative ed- edges. So mm. I would probably try and find an area that did that, that. I still probably would like to use my hands.
1: Yeah. Um, a defining point, a turning point, a kind of sliding doors moment, if you, if you will.
2: Um, well, obviously when Toby died, that was the one for me. Uh, nothing else comes close. Mm. Um, but coming here, it, um, professionally coming, coming here, I was, I'd been doing cardiac surgery for eight years or something by then, and I came here and I didn't know, it. I realised that I knew what we were seeing here was on a scale of complexity that was just a different level and everybody around me was a world expert and i I felt like you know the idiot abroad and i had to start again mentally and there's something really good about realizing you don't know enough um it's very cathartic um humbling Mm -hmm. and i hope i've never lost that sense of humility you just can't know enough you can't Mm -hmm. it's not possible And to, uh, also, I think that made me realise that there's always somebody down the corridor who knows more about something than you do, and just ask. That's certainly where we work with F1, with the airline industry, with the hotel industry, uh, with people who've been sorting out production lines at Porsche. You know, all of those people we've been associated with over the time. Um, We wouldn't have done it if you hadn't learned that they know more than you do, and there's nothing wrong with asking.
1: Yeah. Good And finally, what keeps you awake at night?
2: Donald Trump. Ah <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> Don't
1: let him for God's sake.
2: Um, a Brexit.
1: <laughs> do you mean, really think about that t- a lot? You know, is that uh, well trouble you to I that know, extent? Uh, right. the,
2: the Brexit does. I think. I think that's just a catastrophe mm. for Britain. Um, and I do worry about. I do worry about politics. I mean, mm. we're talking today just after the Israelis have shot loads and loads of people across the fence. Um, and I, I, I worry about the instability of the world and its drift towards plutocracy. I don't I don't feel comfortable with that. I think the the evidence has been that l- relatively large groupings of like minded people across boundaries has been good for us. Mm. And the idea that um by splitting and building petty nationalism and going back into ways that were the nineteen fifties, which I can remember, they weren't good. Mm. Um and I would say I do worry about that. Mm. Uh, so, and what, what, what is you losing s- your
1: sleep worth it though? When, well, get I don't you
2: really lose sleep for anything. But <laughs> um, so you're
1: a good sleeper. Mm, can yeah. you can you can you park what you've done during the day? Yes, I, I, yes no, I can
2: do that really easily. But you know you can't when when you are worried about a patient or something mm-hmm. bad has happened. Mm. It's not so much loss of sleep, it's that when you do wake, it's there. Mm. Um, And you're constantly trying to find solutions to problems, which is what makes it interesting. Um, And then coming in and talking about it with your colleagues is just Mm. really good. Mm. Now the technology is so great, you can actually share it at home and play around or or cross cross continents.
1: Do you know, my, my, um, my Brexit anecdote is that um, the vote was happening when I went into labour, so I had to sign. I had to sign a form for uh, to vote by proxy, and um, I then had a, quite a tricky labour and sort of was completely out of it afterwards on drugs. And I came to and I said to one of the nurses, "Oh, what whatever happened with the Brexit vote, you know?" And she was it, she was welling up. She was yeah, in tears. I was
2: in Venice. at a meeting of the. Cardiac European congenital heart surgeons association. You was
1: wrong where you were when you heard it about Brexit.
2: And they weren't it. Really?
1: Yeah. I mean because Well I thought I was dreaming, I honestly thought I'm still high, but no. No, we'd spent
2: we had spent twenty years trying to get Europe together to use consistent terminology, consistent outcome reporting across Europe and across the United States. And um, we had, had to find money you know, from the EU to do that, and um, it, it just was uh, philosophically destroyed in a moment mm. by people who should have known better. Mm. Um,
1: but that is a podcast for another day. Yeah. I'd actually quite like to do that with you, if that's mm. okay. Of course. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I could listen to you all day long, and I'm sure you've got plenty more to, to tell us. Yeah. Um, formula one but uh, you know about medicine and everything else and i and i know that there'll be plenty of questions from the listeners about about what you've said so hopefully we can keep back in and, sure. and meet again someday delightful. soon but in the meantime thank you very much thank, thank you,
2: you.